Genesis chapter 26. I'll be reading almost the whole chapter. Um, when I preach and cover things, I like to connect the dots, and that requires a lot of reading every Sunday. You know, I'll go to churches, or I have gone, and they'll read one or two verses, and then they expand from there. But I prefer to read a larger section and then tie it with what things we've studied before, where we presently are, and what things that happen later, so that we can get a big picture of what's taking place here. And then, uh, having done so, I think we can appreciate how um, this truly is the Word of God, that uh, it's all connected to uh, each other, and it's connected to where we are today and what's happening in our world. So uh, let's pick it up, verse 1 of Genesis chapter 26. And there was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went unto Abimelech, king of the Philistines, unto Gerar. And the Lord appeared unto him and said, Go not down into Egypt, dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with thee and will bless thee, for unto thee and unto thy seed I will give all these countries, and I will perform the oath which I swear unto Abraham thy father. And I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven, and will give unto thy seed all these countries, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And Isaac dwelt in Gerar, and the men of the place asked him of his wife, and he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say, She is my wife, lest, said he, the men of the place should kill me for Rebekah, because she was fair to look upon. And it came to pass, when he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out at a window and saw, and, behold, Isaac was sporting with Rebekah, his wife. And Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, of a surety she is thy wife, and how saidest thou, she is my sister? And Isaac said unto him, Because, I said, lest I die for her. And Abimelech said, What is this thou hast done unto us? One of the people might lightly have lain with thy wife, and thou shouldest have brought guiltiness upon us. And Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He that touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Then Isaac sowed in that land and received in the same year an hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. And the man waxed great and went forward and grew until he became very great, for he had possession of flocks and possession of herds and great store of servants, and the Philistines envied him. For all the wells which his father's servants had digged in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines had stopped them and filled them with earth. And Abimelech said unto Isaac, Go from us, for thou art much mightier than we. And Isaac departed thence, and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar, and dwelt there. And Isaac digged again the wells of water, which they had digged in the days of Abraham his father, for the Philistines had stopped them after the death of Abraham. And he called their names after the names by which his father had called them. And Isaac's servants digged in the valley, and found there a well of springing water. And the herdmen of Gerar did strive with Isaac's herdmen, saying, The water is ours. And he called the name of the well Essek, because they strove with him. And they digged another well, and strove for that also, and called the name of it Sitna. And he removed from thence, and digged another well. And for that they strove not, and he called the name of it Rehoboth. And he said, For now the Lord hath made room for us, 
and we shall be fruitful in the land. And he went up from thence to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared unto him that same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, thy father. Fear not, for I am with thee and will bless thee and multiply thy seed for my servant Abraham's sake. And he builded an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants digged a well. Then Abimelech went to him from Gerar and Ahuzath, one of his friends, and Hishkol, the chief captain of his army. And Isaac said unto them, Wherefore come ye to me, seeing ye hate me, and have sent me away from you? And they said, We saw certainly that the Lord was with thee, and we said, Let there be now an oath between us, even between us and thee, and let us make a covenant with thee, that thou wilt do us no harm, as we have not touched thee, and as we have done unto thee nothing but good, and have sent thee away in peace, thou art now the blessed of the Lord. And he made a feast, and they did eat and drink, and they rose up quickly in the morning, and swear one to another, and Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. And it came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him concerning the well which they had digged, and said unto him, We have found water. And he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba unto this day. And thus is the reading of God's word. And all his children say, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up your word unto us, that again we might be able to connect the dots and see the larger picture of God, sovereign over all things, working in the lives of all of these individuals to bring glory unto himself. We pray thee, Lord, that we would see Christ's providence therein as well, as in addition to what things you would have your saints to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as I mentioned, that I want to take a kind of a big picture look at what things we see here happening before us in uh, Scripture so that we can appreciate the relevance of the Bible to where we are in the world today. It is a living book. It is relevant to every um, generation that has lived on this earth from Adam all the way on down. Um, and I am certain today that you will see where we are in this world and how it has its roots right back here in Genesis chapter 1. <laughs> Um, though I'm going to speak of Genesis chapter 26 mainly. Um, so this chapter opens up in verse 1. It says that there is a famine in the land. And famines, as we know, are generally drought-related. That's where they begin. There's no water, therefore there's no food. And so when you look at the big picture and span here, that we can appreciate that um, God sets before certain individuals in the Old Testament, in Genesis in particular, whose lives we can set end-to-end and appreciate the growth of the Christian in their walk with the Lord. Um, If we were to begin by way of example with uh, Noah, we would appreciate that he represents regeneration. He went from the old world to the new world. Then we have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. But with respect to having a famine in the land, this here in verse 1 reminds us that there was one in Abraham's day. There's a famine in Abraham's day. There's a famine in Isaac's day. And there's a famine in Jacob's day. And each of these three men deal with the famine differently. Also, the one with Jacob overlaps with uh, Joseph who's an archetype of Christ. So with respect to the famine that Abraham faced, what did he do? Well, he didn't think God could take care of him, so he walks right through the promised land and ends up in Egypt. And Isaac, he goes to Gerar. He stays a little bit closer to the home, and the Lord comes to him and says, you just need to stay right here. Don't go to Egypt. And he obeys, and he stays right there. When it comes to Jacob, Jacob stays in place 
doesn't go anywhere, and the Lord actually has to come to him and say, yes, it's okay for you to go down to Egypt. So we see that as we move further between these three men, that they become more obedient and more in tune to what the Lord would have them do in their lives. Joseph, with respect to the famine, he's the archetype of Christ, and so he actually provides for the people during the famine. And there's always a spiritual overtone to all of these things, so I would hope you could appreciate that when there is a famine of God's word in the land, it is the Christian who would then feed the people with God's word so that they would have spiritual meat and drink, which I'll talk about again in a minute here. Also, with respect to these men, we have Abraham, and how does he deal with his wife? And compare that with with Isaac and with Jacob, and we see that Abraham denies his wife twice. Um, Isaac denies his wife once, And Jacob actually works 14 years for two wives. So we can see that uh, as they grow in Christ, that they become more uh, servant-like in terms of what they do and how they deal with their wife. All of these men, of course, it's the opposite of what Christ does. These men deny their wives because they're afraid they will be killed for their wives and their wives taken from them. Whereas Christ laid down his life for his wife, he was the one who made her fair to look upon and died for her. So that would be the epitome of all of this would be what we would do, what Christ does. And Ephesians chapter 5 tells us that very thing here. So back in Genesis 26 here, we see that there's a famine in the land, and we should appreciate that this is going to represent a trial for Isaac. Like I just mentioned, it was a trial for all of those people. And we know what the Lord says in Romans 8:28 that all things work together for good, to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now, God is sovereign over all things, and if he's going to withhold the rain, why then it's for the benefit of his people, but there's going to be a lot of people that are going to suffer as a result of that. So all these people are going to suffer famine because God has ordained that it is for Isaac's benefit, and he does the same thing to us this very day. Um, Famines are caused by a couple of things. One, of course, would be environmental, which, of course, is under the sovereign control of God. But there's another reason there are famines, and that has to do with the responsibility of man. Man's failure to use the resources that God has given him and set before him. So back in Genesis chapter uh, 1, verse 27 and verse 28, we read in verse 27 that God creates man in his own image. And then in verse 28, God says, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowls of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. There's a direct command here from God to subdue the earth. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that you ought to take care of the planet, and that you ought to make sure that you can draw from it resources sufficient to feed all of the people. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 22, after Noah comes out of the ark, God affirms to him that, you know, while the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. So global warming, climate change is all a lie. God is telling you here that there will be seed time and harvest. So it's the responsibility of man to take care of the earth and, and utilize the resources that God has given him to provide for the people. So... Our government should use God-given resources to take care of its people. We see this work itself out in the life of Joseph, who does that very thing. He knows that a famine of seven years is coming, but it's going to follow seven good years. And so what does he do? He wisely oversees all the agricultural production of Egypt, the collection and the distribution of food to provide for not only Egypt, but for all of the nations round about. 
If you get on uh, Google Maps, you can see about 100 miles south of Cairo what appears to be an oasis on the west side of the Nile River, which is fed from the Nile River, and it's referred to as Joseph's Canal. Archaeologists found in the late 1800s about a couple, couple hundred kilometers of canals that had been dug during, I think they said, the 12th dynasty. So Joseph did what a government should do. He began to irrigate the desert to increase food productions so that the people would be provided for in the um, coming famine. Now, what does our government do? California does not do that. Back in January, there was an article that stated that 95% of the water collected in the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta area had been flushed out to sea. Obviously, this is to the hurt of all of us, all of the people. It's a hurt to agriculture. And I did see a documentary where some uh, farmers are actually building their own collection basins, large areas they are bulldozing out so that they can collect their own water and then irrigate their fields uh, that much longer without having to draw from wells and rely on government sources. Now, these are really quite large projects, which you can see might financially bury a farmer, but it's really, um, because it's for the collective good of the people, it's the responsibility of the government to undertake these projects as they are told to do so by God. So um, the government should garner the necessary resources um, to take care of such large projects, which are for the good of the people that they govern. Um, However, we know that there are lots of times when governments not only fail to care for their people, but intentionally act in ways that are harmful to the people. And we are living in those times now when our government is acting in ways that are harmful to its people. Now, I'm not going to speak generally. I'm going to speak more specifically about California as it applies to Genesis chapter 26 today. So this has to do with the drought and California's response to COVID because they are parallel uh, to what we see here in Genesis 26. Now, in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, it says, in Romans 15, 4, it says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime, Genesis 26 was written aforetime, were written for our learning. God has put this in the Bible that we would learn something from it. There's a lot of world history that God could have put in the Bible, but he obviously has um, concerned himself, um, though he directs the affairs all over the world, he has concerned himself what is happening in that part of the world that we today, or the world calls Palestine. So Genesis chapter 26 was written aforetime for our learning today. And I'll continue with Romans 15, 4, that we through patience and comfort of scriptures might have hope. So we're going to read this, see what's going on, and then we're going to see where we would place our hope. That's what God has put it there. So he's report, recorded this short piece of history in 26 to teach us about man, Christians in particular, to teach us something about Satan, to teach us about God in general, and to teach us about Christ in particular. So on the surface here in verse 1, we see that there is a famine in the land. So I ask the question, whose fault is that? Well, because of the famine, Isaac goes down to Gerar, which is near the Gaza Strip in southwestern Israel today, which we know is ruled by the Hamas, which are hostile to the Jews. If anybody turned on their TV yesterday, I'm speaking from the Bible, and you're seeing it happen today. The people that live there are described as Palestinians, And that is translated from a Hebrew word, which is the root word of the word 
Philistines. It's the root to the word Philistines of which Philistines of which Abimelech is the king and with whom we've seen a different king named Abimelech. These are it's a title given to the king of the Philistines that has dealt with Abraham already. So he's in a part of the world that we know contains a group of people that are hostile to the nation of Israel. They were then and they are to this day. Um, 500 years later, when the Hebrews, after they've gone through um, their um, time of uh, bondage in Egypt, they are going to return to the promised land. And before they enter in, God gives them a warning. In Numbers chapter 33, verse 55, God says to them about when they come into the land, he says, but if ye will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which ye let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and shall vex you in the land wherein ye dwell. So when they were coming into the promised land, when they went in there, God gave them instructions to displace and get rid of all of the people. And he warns them, if you don't do that, then they are going to be um, pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides. And the Philistines are among those people that they did not displace and drive out of the land. And as you move forward in the scripture, you can see that they were fighting with them off and on, um, as far as I know, all of their existence until the uh, Babylonians came down and cleaned the place up. Um, so they are fighting with them to this very day. Um, now, if there's a famine in the land, why would Isaac go unto Abimelech, the king of the Philistines? Well, he would go there if he thinks he's going to find water there, and therefore he'll be able to provide provender for his flocks and all that is under his charge. Remember, he inherited that everything that Abraham had, all of his possessions, which would include all of his herds. And so uh, Isaac grew up in this area. Uh, we know that because Abraham had been down to um, um, Gerar before. And in Genesis 20, verse 16, Abimelech had said to Abraham, after the issue of Abraham denying his wife, he said, Behold, this is Abimelech speaking in Genesis 20, 16, Behold, my land is before thee, Dwell where it pleases thee. Dwell where it pleaseth thee. Um, the irony of that is it's not his land. It's really going to be um, the seed of Abraham's land. So that's just something to park in the back of your mind. In Genesis 21, 24 through 31, we learn that there was a well at Beersheba that was dug by Abraham. It was accredited to him, though it was dug by his servants. Um, so Isaac knows that there is water to be found there and therefore goes down there with that expectation that there will be water there. And no doubt he has the knowledge um, that the land was promised to Abraham. I'm certain that Abraham had shared that truth with him, which God reiterates for him in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 26. So he get, receives that promise again. Um, verse 4, he says, And I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven and will give unto thy seed all these countries, uh, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because God is going to give that land to his uh, progeny. Now, as a reminder, I had told us um, maybe a month or so ago that Abimelech is a type of Satan, and I don't have time to build that case, but just uh, accept that if you would, and then you can study that on your own. Abimelech is a type of Satan. Of Satan. So what I would appreciate here is that one of the reasons there is a famine, famine is because under Abimelech's leadership, um, and no doubt as his direction as king of the Philistines, 
that all of the wells that Abraham had dug had been filled with earth. Verse 15 of 26 says that. All the wells which his father's servants had digged in the days of Abimelech his father, the Philistines had stopped them and filled them with earth. So what kind of a despotic ruler not only fails to dig wells, but fills existing wells with dirt to the hurt of his people? What kind of a fool does that? Oh, how about our California government that would do that? And they have done that. Back in 2016, there was an article, and this was in the midst of the drought, that California released over 1 million acre-feet of water out to the ocean. They released over 1 million of acre-feet out of water out to the ocean. That is one feet deep, a million acres of water. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9 says, The thing that hath been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. What we're reading about here in Genesis 26, we're living it right now. That thing that was done is the thing that's going to be, and that's what's happening right now. So what we see Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, do, so too do we see our governor do, to the hurt of agriculture, which of course hurts the people of the state. Because you need water to feed your people, You need water to feed the flocks, and you need water to grow crops. And so water equals both drink and food. No water, there's a famine. In both cases, in terms of Abimelech and our governor, we have rulers acting in opposition to that which is good for the people. It's not just negligence. They are doing things contrary to what's good for the people that anybody can see would be harmful to the people. They are making it difficult for people to get water. And in our case, they functionally ration it. Even though the drought is supposedly over, my water rates have not gone down. The more water I use, it goes up exponentially in price, so they are functionally rationing water out to this day. Now, while this is interesting and an academic biblical level, what things I, uh, we see our governor do, it's really teaching us a spiritual lesson here. And that is this, whereas Abimelech is a type of Satan, he's not the one who's actually stopping up the wells. He's not the one striving about the wells when Isaac's servants dig them up. It's his servants that are doing it. And so we see a parallel in terms of what we read in Daniel chapter 7, and which describes the government as a beast. And we see when you look in Revelation chapter 13, verse 4, and Revelation 12, 9, that teaches us that Satan is the power behind the government, which the Bible describes as a beast. Satan is the power behind the government. So you have somebody behind the scenes who is directing the efforts of his servants, uh, large numbers of people that are doing things that are contrary to the best interests of the people. You saw the same thing true with Nimrod back in Genesis chapter 10 and 11. Nimrod Nimrod is also a type of Satan. He doesn't actually build the tower of Babel, but he's the one behind the scenes that is uh, authorizing and um, the building of it. It says that the beginning of his kingdom was Babylon. He's the king of it. So Abimelech here is a type of Satan, is the power or authority behind the stopping up the, of the wells and the striving against those that would open them up again. So here's where this gets interesting on a spiritual level. Um, in the Bible, the water can represent the gospel and the Holy Ghost. And you must receive both if you're going to have eternal life. The gospel is preached and faith places it um, on your heart. Um, when we were in Genesis 21, uh, chapter 21, verse 30, I made the case that the digging of the well there 
represents crucifying Christ. When Christ was on the cross, you'll recall that when the soldier pierced his side uh, with a spear, out of his side came water and blood. Um, So that helps us tie this together. In John chapter 4, if this wasn't obvious to us enough, Jesus is actually sitting on the well, and a woman comes to get a drink, and he says, if you would ask of me to give drink, I would give you living water, and which you would never thirst. Um, So what he's talking about is, if you had asked me, I would give you the gospel and give you the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, it makes that direct connection. The Lord says, hey, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Now, This is an allusion when the Lord is sitting on the well there in John chapter 4. This is an allusion to what you read in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13. In Jeremiah 17, verse 13, there the Lord describes himself as the fountain of living water. The Lord describes himself as the fountain of living water. So here we are in verse 19 of Genesis chapter 26. The first of the wells that they open up is found to be a well of, quote, springing water, same Hebrew word. So the well here in Genesis 26 is a well of springing water or living water. And so this helps us to appreciate the underlying spiritual battle of what is being set forth before us here in 26 and what took place in California. Amos chapter 8, verse 11, which I alluded to um, already, in Amos 8, 11, it says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I, this is God speaking, I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. So the stopping up of these wells represents the shutting down of churches, places where the gospel is preached, places where people can get spiritual meat and spiritual drink, where they might um, hear the gospel, which is likened unto water. And that is exactly what our government did during COVID. They shut down the churches, meaning they stopped up the wells, the places where people could go to fellowship as Christians and and share their love of the Lord and worship the Lord and hear the gospel. And they strove against all those that endeavored to keep them open and fought against them via the courts, endeavoring to bury them financially and destroy them. Um, And when they were reopened because eventually they were, um, they sought to ration the living water by limiting how many people could come in, how close they could stand to each other, and that they couldn't sing any hymns. So they were still dealing, they were still fighting against the churches um, when they began to open them up again. So again, Romans chapter 15, verse 4, it says, Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of scriptures, might have hope that we, through patience and comfort of scriptures, might have hope. Okay, what is that the people hope for? Well, we hope for Christ, of course. So looking back in Genesis chapter 26, with the backdrop of this spiritual climate of opposition, what does God do? How does he deal with the situation here? Well, first thing we see in verse 2 is that the Lord appears to Isaac, which in and of itself reassures him. That would be a tremendous thing for the Lord to appear unto him and to reassure him as the presence of the Lord would to reassure any of his elect. He does not do that anymore. Um, If you're hearing voices, it's not from the Lord. It's your subconscious affirming whatever it is you think you want to do. We, the Lord speaks to us only through his word and in prayer. This is his revealed will is his Bible now. 
Second thing the Lord does is he tells him not to go down to Egypt, but to dwell there in Gerar. And he reiterates his promise to him that um, he has made to his father um, Abraham. It's not for your sake, but for the sake of Abraham's sake, that God, uh, because of his covenantal blessing that he made to Abraham, that he makes this promise here. And God does all of these things. Um, He tells him that he will be with him and he will bless him um, and gives him all this wonderful reassurance. And he does this all the while knowing that Isaac, the miracle child of promise, having just received the blessings and promises of God, will immediately fall into sin and distrust God. He's going to fall into sin and he's going to deny his wife. He's going to lie about his relationship with her. He's going to say it's his sister. At least Abraham could rationalize it because it was his half-sister. But Rebecca is Isaac's cousin. It's not his sister. So it's a a blatant lie. Um, And he says he does this because he thinks uh, the people will find his wife particularly attractive and kill him and take her. And so he doesn't trust God to protect him right after God has visited him and blessed him. Um, So there goes Isaac in a land where the people are subvertly and overtly hostile to him, mistrusting the God who has just blessed him and told him to stay there and has promised that he will be with him. Now, does this sound familiar to anybody? Or am I the only one who can read the Bible, read all God's wonderful promises, think about all of the wonderful things he's done for me, he's died for me, he shed his blood for me, he covers me with his righteousness, and then I can fail to trust him. I cannot, um, I'll go out and I'll do things, I'll sin against him, and I'll just, it just turns your head upside down that all of these wonderful promises are here, and yet we will walk away and not apprehend them and believe in them and trust that God will, in fact, fill all of them uh, out in our lives as he has fulfilled them in everybody's life here. Again, these things are written that we would have hope. So, um, God does reassure us things, and it reminds us, just like he reminded Isaac here, that these lands are going to belong to your seed. The Lord reminds us that we are the inheritors of the new heaven and the new earth. This is our, not literally our place, but again, all things are to be had by us, um, and yet we still fall into sin, and we fail to trust God, um, that he will not do for us what things are best for us, which he, in fact, always does. doesn't give us what we want. He gives us what we need, and he gives us what is best for us. Um, And he shares that with us many, many times. And so in spite of ourselves, in spite of what Isaac does, what does God do? What is God's response to Isaac? Well, he hedges about him. He essentially protects Isaac from himself. And that's a prayer that I have quite often. Lord, Protect me from myself. Keep me from engaging in sins that are so grievous that it just would bring uh, an embarrassment to you and my family. So he hedges about Isaac and protects him from himself. The Lord has Abimelech discover Isaac's sin. Hey, that's not your sister. That's your wife. Um, And Abimelech has a history of Abraham doing something similar, even though it was his father. Back in Genesis chapter 20, um, verse 3 You recall Abimelech had taken Sarah in, thinking that he would take her to wife, but God came to Abimelech in a dream and said unto him, rather directly, Behold, thou art but a dead man for the woman which thou hast taken, for she is a man's wife. And then over in verse 18, it says that the Lord had fast closed up all the wombs in the house of Abimelech, 
because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. There wasn't going to be any question who, who was the father of Isaac. It's Abraham. It's not going to be Abimelech. So he stopped up all the wounds. Nobody got uh, pregnant in um, Abimelech's house. So this Abimelech here in 26 probably remembers what things took place back then. No doubt his father shared with him. And so they, he tells the people under penalty of death in verse 11 of 26 that they are not to touch either Isaac or his wife. So God hedges about him, and he protects him. And I appreciate that he does the same thing in my life. And so we see that once the sin is out in the open, and it is dealt with, and his wife restored to him, what do we read about in verse 12? His bounty is an hundredfold with the Lord blessing him. And so it is with our sin. Once it's out in the open, we make confession. When I say out in the open, I mean between you and the Lord. Once it's out in the open between you and the Lord, and it's dealt with, why you can expect to feel and sense his um, blessing in your life. Um, So God increases Isaac's strength, his herds and his flocks and his servants all increase, so much so that in the face of the famine, and chronologically here, the wells are still stopped up, says that the Philistines envy him, and eventually the Philistine government figures this out, that Isaac is the blessed of the Lord, which of course is to the glory of God. So while all the Philistines are struggling with a famine, Isaac, right in the middle of them all, is sowing in the land and he's receiving an hundredfold. Now, you'd think any fool would be able to connect the dots to that. There's a famine in the land, Isaac's flocks are increasing, and ours are not. I wonder how that happens. Oh, he's the blessed of the Lord. Isaac, no doubt, with his bounty in grain and stock, will find a ready market with the Philistines amongst whom he dwells, so that though there is a famine in the land, the Philistines have food because God is blessing Isaac. And so we see that also in the world here. The world is blessed by virtue of the fact that they are Christians. So the Philistines are receiving an ancillary benefit because God blesses Isaac. And rather than be thankful for it, what do they do? Abimelech sends Isaac away. Now, As Christians, let's make no mistake about it, if the world could do so, it would get rid of all of the Christians permanently. But they can't do that because God won't let them do that. When governments do persecute Christians and send them away, what do Christians do? They do the same thing that Isaac did in verse 25. They set up an altar to worship the Lord. They dig a well, meaning they open a church and they preach the gospel And so the gospel moves to another location from which those people are then blessed by the preaching of the gospel. Um, And when the Christians become strong enough where it gives rise to concern to the government, what do they do? They seek to enter into a covenant with the church that is rooted in lies. Back in the 60s, uh, legislation was um, passed that allowed churches to become um, nonprofit corporations in which case there wouldn't be any taxes paid on donations. Well, they didn't need to pass that legislation because the Constitution already exempted churches from it, so there's legislation based on a lie that the churches all bit on and, and um, incorporated themselves, and as soon as they incorporated themselves, why they made themselves subordinate to the state because they have to follow certain state laws, and therefore they subordinated God's word, God's church, to the government based on a lie. So that's what they do. They try to get you into a covenant, and that's what takes place here. Let's look at Genesis 26, verses 26 through 29. Verse 26, it says, 
Then Abimelech went to him from Gerar, and Ahuzah, one of his friends, and Pishbol, the chief captain of his army. And Isaac said unto them, Wherefore come ye unto me, seeing ye hate me, and have sent me away from you? And they said, We saw certainly that the Lord was with thee, and we said, Let there now be an oath between us, even between us and thee, and let us make a covenant with thee, that thou should do us no hurt. This is one-sided here, that thou will do us no hurt, as we have not touched thee, and as we have done unto thee nothing but good, and have sent thee away in peace. Um, have done nothing but good. Is that really true? Um, except for stopping up all of the wells that Abraham had dug and fought against me when I opened them up and then sent me away. I would hardly characterize that as doing me nothing but good. But again, they want to enter into a covenant with him, so they're going to um, season it uh, with lies. Now, it's true he didn't directly touch him, but he didn't directly touch him because God kept him from doing so. Uh, But he did try to hurt him by stopping up the wells and striving against those that would open them. But again, God blessed Isaac in spite of what things Abimelech endeavored to do. Um, Nevertheless, Isaac swears to him, and so they depart in peace. Satan and his servants would destroy us if they could, but they can't because God has hedged about us. To be sure, God will use them to try us and to refine us for his glory, but they can do no more to us than God would permit them. And, of course, Job's life is an example of that. God has hedged us about. And what does he tell us to do if there is a famine in the land? If our enemies hunger, we are to do what? We are to feed them. And if he thirsts, we are to give him drink. In other words, if they're suffering from a spiritual famine, what are we to do? We're supposed to give them the gospel. We're supposed to um, place them under the hearing of the word of the Lord. Um, We most certainly don't want to hurt them, but rather only to help them, because we certainly remember um, that we once were deaf and blind, but yet the Lord sent somebody to preach the gospel to us. So we were once enemies. God certainly did no hurt to us through his son, Jesus Christ, but rather um, preached the gospel to us. Now, um, that's all I wanted to share with us today, but by way of re- review, I want us to appreciate the wonderful parallel with what you see in the Bible and what you see going on in the world today. The things that we see in here are the things that we see when we look out the window. The Israelis are still suffering from attacks from the um, Philistines. We saw that uh, war was uh, started again on Saturday. Uh, we see that the, um, the Philistines are people that uh, are antagonistic to um, God's people still try to stop up the wells, still try to fill them with dirt, and when we open, endeavor to open them, they still strive against us. However, in spite of all of this, in spite of all of the satanic subterfuge and the battles that we face, in spite of our own sin, God never leaves us nor forsakes us, and his church continues to advance in this world unto his glory. Amen. Amen.